Welcome and thanks for listening to another show of The Health Zone. I'm Michal Mahuna. Check out and like our Facebook page on www.facebook.com forward slash The Health Zone Show or follow us on Twitter on the letter D Health Zone or log on to our website on www.thehealthzoneshow.com If you subscribe to our mailing list on there, you will get the Hellstone Show delivered to your inbox every week and also you'll get a copy of our free ebook called How to Transform Your Health in 2016. Also, if you have any feedback on the show or if you would like to get in touch with us, our email is tunein at thehealthzoneshow.com Today I'm talking with emotional healing coach, international teacher, world traveler and curious student of life, J.P. Sears. Hello, J.P. Hey, Michal. It's nice to be here with you today. So tell me, J.P., who are you and what do you do? Well, I'm a devilishly handsome, redheaded dude with blue eyes. Really stunning, actually. And uh, aside from wanting to brainwash people to think that about me, uh, who I am, I, I like to call myself a curious student of life. Um, I'm always interested in diving deep into the vertical depths of life. I think there's so much mystery in the human heart, soul, and psyche that uh, that's really what I'm curious about. And I'm privileged to be able to earn my living being an emotional healing coach where I work with people in the realms of their heart, healing their pain, moving beyond inner blockages and self-sabotage. And I'm also uh, lucky enough to have a lovely creative outlet of my business uh, in my YouTube channel where I make videos to offer people insights about life, food for thought, as well as um, there's a comedy series in that YouTube, uh, in my YouTube channel, Awaken with JP as well. So that... um, uh, that's a little bit about who I think I am. Who, who, what the real answer is is a mystery to me, but that's some of who I think I am. I'm curious, JP, how did you get into this type of work? I think it's a, one of the cases of uh, we start teaching what we need to learn the most. So I think that was my um, deal. I, I think luckily enough, I don't know, probably 14 years ago when I began this kind of work, I was delusional enough to believe that I didn't need this kind of work. I didn't need inner exploration because, hey, I'm put together and I never cry, so life is good for me. But yeah, other people need it. So anyway, out of my own delusion, I start kind of diving into the inner realm studies, taking courses and working with clients, thinking that I'm just supposed to be giving this work to other people. But luckily enough, I had my delusion shattered and realized pretty quickly that there was so much that I didn't know about myself that was in there, you know, inner pain, inner mysteries, all that cool, ugly stuff. So I really needed a lot of healing, a lot of growth and uh, a lot of support from myself that I wasn't giving myself. And, uh, so as I'm, uh, Uh, lucky enough to earn my living doing this work as a professional, uh, teaching it, facilitating it with clients, I kind of think the real deal is I'm a professional student. I get paid to continually learn about myself through other people. It's pretty groovy. So, you know, that's the long answer. The short answer is I'm a screwed up, wounded dude. That's how I got into this work. 
I know you have a very successful YouTube channel as well, JP. And look, what inspired you to create your first video? It's a good question. I had, um, I think, two levels of inspiration. I'll go the most superficial materialistic first, just to make me sound like a jerk. Uh, the first was uh, I did it to, to support my business, my business of working with clients, teaching classes. I had been affiliated with a Holistic Health Institute, teaching their classes for a number of years. But it was time for me to step away from working with them, teaching for them, and you know, kind of go off on my own into a, a deeper degree. So realizing that I'm kind of leaving the mothership, uh, I needed to create some additional ways of bringing business into my business. So my YouTube channel originally was thought like, okay, I'll make videos. So that'll be a way for audiences around the world to find me and some people will be interested in working with me. Um, so but I think uh, the deeper reason beyond the, that kind of superficial build my business agenda was a, a more profound reason of I have a voice and I need my voice to be voiced. Uh, I would say that I need my voice to be heard, but I think that's not quite it. I think I have a personal need to voice my voice, just kind of like how a painter, you know, they're, they're a creative artist and they have a need to paint their paintings, to let their art come through them as expressed through their paintbrush on their canvas. Well, I don't use a paintbrush. I don't use a canvas. I use my voice and I, I paint with my points of view. And that has given myself permission to fulfill that need, even though I didn't really consciously know that that was a need of mine when I began doing YouTube. Oh, I've definitely figured out, hell yeah, that's been a need of mine. And as I've been giving myself permission to do that, paint my paintings with my voice, there is a deep and profound inner sense of satisfaction for me giving myself this creative outlet. Um, how it helps other people, some people, and how some people enjoy my videos, that's just a, a lovely secondary consequence. For me, first and foremost, I got into doing my videos because it was good artistic uh, creativity, therapy, and a gift to myself. And I know you've got a lot of YouTube videos covering various topics as well, JP. Do you think people can have similar causes for different issues, but the symptoms may present differently? Uh, yeah, I would absolutely agree. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, um, a root system on a tree. You can have the same root, but, you know, there's two branches stretched far and wide uh, away from each other. You know, a, a person can have a, few, a couple of people can have a, a given wound and let's just say it's an abandonment wound. And one person might express that through having an insatiable need to be in a relationship with a person and always around people. And the other person can be expressing the symptom of their abandonment wound in the opposite way. They're never in a relationship. They keep a wall up. Don't let anybody in. So it's kind of like exact opposite expressions of the exact same root cause. So, uh, yeah, heck yeah, I think that's very possible and very common. 
how do you think this could happen in a person's life? I'm a big fan of believing that a necessary, though painful part of human life is needing to be wounded. I mean, in theory, that just sounds really crappy. Like, oh, needing to be wounded. You're just a pessimistic jerk, JP. And while that might be true, I do believe there's a, a paradox that we can only be as strong as our wounding is deep. So I, it's our wounding, be it physically or psychologically, that creates the potential for us to grow stronger. It's just like if you're a, a guy or a girl, for that matter, you go into the gym because you want to get stronger. But what you're actually doing in the gym, it's wounding yourself. You're lifting the weights, which is breaking down your muscles. It's tearing your muscle cells apart. And that wounding is necessary for your muscles to then grow stronger and bigger. So I think just being in life sets us up for uh, experiencing painful stuff, overwhelming stuff, you know, the, the, the roots of some of our dysfunctions that we see present day in life um, are caused by a, essentially the human condition of encountering pain, challenges, and overwhelm. And I do think there's two types of people in this world, those who are wounded and then those who are in denial of being wounded. Uh, I, I think our degree of wounding isn't necessarily correlated to our uh, awareness of what our wounds are. I mean, there's a lot of folks who would say, yeah, you know, um, I'm good to go. Nothing wrong with me. Um, I you know, wasn't abused as a child, so uh, I'm good to go. Well, I think what that person's really saying is they've yet to recognize how they're wounding um, has shown up for them. So anyway, I'm getting a little rambly, uh, losing sight of your lovely question, Michal. Uh, but hopefully that suffices a little bit for a babbling answer. It reminds me of something I read. I have never met a strong person with an easy life. Wow, well said. I love that. How would you say the internet has benefited your career, JP? Yeah, well, significantly, in a word, is how I'd say it benefited my career. I find it interesting because I'm, you know, though I'm 34 years old, I've got just like this cranky old man that lives inside of me sometimes, you know, kind of like the you know guy yelling out, get off my lawn, sort of that archetype. Yeah, I've got that energy where I resist change. You know, I want things to be, be the way they were because I'm still learning how to say change scares me. So where I'm going with this is it took me years to even get on Facebook. I mean, I had people telling me left, right, and center, JP, you got to get on Facebook for your business. And I'm like, well, screw that. I I don't need that. And it's a distraction, superficial connection. But once I got past my own dogmas and finally, you know, created online profiles through social media, I found that there's a lot of support that the world uh, has given me through the you know conduit of social media and i and i think it's a great opportunity not just for me but literally anybody any business any personal cause 
because one of the gifts of social media and the online world, and I, there's plenty of shadow sides, but one of the light sides of it is there is no middleman between us and our potential audience anymore. You know, we don't need a newspaper. We don't need TV to be a middleman. You know, those things that were uh, yeah, essentially just for the the rare few who were lucky enough to be in them. So it's kind of like, to me, the online world. It's like if we're all singers, the gift of present day online social media is we're all given a microphone. Uh, we all have the potential for our voice to be voiced and to be heard if we choose to sing our songs. It, there's nobody who can take that choice away. There's nothing that you know we need to be given that we're not already given through the online stuff that's available to anybody. Only we are the ones who can choose not to sing our songs. And therefore, only we are the ones that can choose to begin singing our songs. And I, I know for me, one of the scariest parts of my original uh, online experiences were I would sing in my songs and not many people were listening. And, you know, that's kind of scary. It's it's always more validating to have an audience uh, of some substantial size start forming. But for me, I was singing my song uh, for a long time before there were, you know, sizable online crowds, if you will, gathered to uh, hear what my voice was voicing. So, yeah, I do consider the online world to be a really great blessing to my business. And I think the curse of it is, is it can it can swallow you up if you let it in many senses of the word. But I think I and any given individual, we are in control of how much we let it swallow us up or not. And JP, would you have any advice for somebody looking to maybe try and do similar to yourself? Yeah, uh, I would. I am delusional enough to have advice that, hey, I don't know if it'll fit for everybody or anybody, but it's something I'd invite people to consider. If you are looking to create an online presence for your business or your your voice, it uh, doesn't even matter if it's a business, First and foremost, I believe you've got to prioritize doing it for you. If you're not doing it for you, I don't think you'll have the uh, stamina to keep being persistent with getting your message out. Um, if you're looking to get your message out for the priority of being validated, feeling significant, I need a lot of people to notice me, to feel like I matter, uh, that you'll burn out super quick because only in rare cases does a big audience form um, quickly. So I think we got to figure out a way to, you know, have our primary reason why I'm doing what I'm doing is for me. And I know I, you know, I did videos on YouTube for a year and a half before uh, I had any level of significant notice, uh, noticement and acknowledgement. And 
and I was able to to do that and keep going because I was doing my videos pri primarily for me. They were my canvas. It's kind of like the painter. If he or she is painting the painting to make a quick buck or to impress other people, they're not being true to their art form. And, and they won't have the longevity and they probably won't have the depth of quality in their work compared to if they're painting, they're painting for them to first and foremost honor the creative spirit flowing through them. So I, I would say that you got to do your best to honor the creative spirit that flows through you. If you can keep your eye on that, I think that's the North Star. You can't go wrong if that's what you're following. Um, I think life can sometimes serve up a reality that's different than our expectations. So we might judge that we're going wrong, but I, I think that's just judgment. I think if we keep our eye on our creative spirit, the North Star never misguides us. And I know you're talking about the creativity of the spirit there, JP. I interviewed Julia Cameron. The name's familiar. I don't think I've... Yeah, she wrote a book called The Artist's Way. She was uh, married to Martin Scorsese at one once uh -huh. upon a time. I interviewed her on the show maybe about six or seven months ago, but she's very much a big advocate of what you just said there about the spirit and creativity and following your, your own inner guide. I love Julia already, uh, probably because we agree with each other. That's how arrogant I am. I, I love people who agree with me. What kind of profile of people are you attracting watching your videos in JP? Yeah, you know, people from all over the map, really. Uh, and of course, there's there's the dominant uh, demographics I'll mention in a second. But to me, the really, the exciting part is young people and super old people from many different countries. Um, that to me is exciting. It's almost like a, a an exciting sense of unity uh, that I get to experience through the videos. But the primary demographics, I mean, the 51% uh, majority of my viewers, uh, they're, let's see, I believe it's age ranges like 22 to 40 is the dominant one. And that's about 50-50 male, female. And, you know, the most of those people are pretty conscious people. They're, they're walking their version of a conscious path. You know, my uh, for my quote unquote serious videos, they have any appeal to them. They'd have to be on some degree of a conscious path. And my comedy videos, they they um, though they do kind of attract people who are also primarily humor motivated. My comedy videos are, you know, themed off of spirituality and self growth. So it it it. it kind of takes also a conscious person to even understand my demented sense of humor in those videos. In recent times, there's been a lot more interest in the area of spirituality and personal development. And do you think there's any reason for that? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think in, in a way, I'm going to sound artsy-fartsy, sort of ultra-spiritual for a second. I think they we're experiencing in the you know, these past five 10 years, uh, it's a change of the season uh, as far as consciousness goes. 
So I think the there's a kind of the old generation of self-growth consciousness, the you know, kind of the quote unquote new age. I think that's that's being put to rest. And there's essentially the newer age consciousness that's replacing that. And which I think is wonderful. I mean, I, I think that's growth. That's evolution of consciousness. I know sometimes we, you know, we get on a spiritual path or self-growth path and we, we get attached to a consciousness that's new to us then. And we think, okay, this is, this is it. I've got it and it'll be it forever. But that becomes old after a while to us. And I think on the whole, uh, there's been an expiration. So the, you know, especially the younger generation, people 40 and under, uh, we're the, the change makers. And that's not to say someone who's 90 year, years old isn't going to have a, uh, an amazing contribution of, you know, new ideas and new ways of looking at things. No, not to say that at all. It's just to say, typically, the newer generations, there's a higher population of new ideas, new perspectives in those generations. So I think a lot of that is sprouting through the relatively younger people in the world today, kind of saying, hey, this thing called life, spirituality, um, purpose, Here's some new perspectives we can look through about what that is and why that is. And, you know, we sit here today in late 2015 saying like, yeah, there's great change. This is new stuff. Well, 15 years from now, we'll be looking back and this same new stuff in 2015, it'll be getting composted in 15 years and there will be new, newer stuff coming in from the younger generations. And hopefully for the old farts like me at that time, we'll um, have some degree of willingness to accept change, even though we'll have grown familiar and accustomed to the, you know, the newness of 2015, eh, it'll be rotten milk by the year 2030. So hopefully we'll be letting, willing to let some of that go and adopt some fresh ideas. You mentioned there, JP, about ultra-spiritual people. What are your thoughts on them? <laughs> uh, they make me laugh. Um, and the yeah, ultra-spiritual people... And uh, I've got to kind of raise my hand and include myself in that category. My, you know, my ultra spiritual series on my YouTube channel, uh, that that's therapy for me because I've uh, I've been certainly guilty of being ultra spiritual uh, plenty. And I think for me, what ultra spiritual is, what an ultra spiritual person is, is a person who. Uh, I think two things. One, they use spiritual practices in a way that actually makes them less spiritual. And I think it's also someone who's consumed by their own anti-dogma dogma. So in other words, it's a person who's pretty blind to themselves. Um, and I, you know, kind of the, the first point of that about an ultra-spiritual person 
using quote unquote spiritual practices and philosophies in a way that actually makes them less spiritual while they believe that it's making them more spiritual. I like to look at spirituality in a simple definition. It's essentially oneness and union. It's inclusivity. But when we're using spiritual practices, kind of saying, hey, I meditate for two hours a day, which makes me you know, more progressive than people who meditate one hour a day or people who don't meditate, that's creating separation. That's kind of saying like I'm, uh, you know, my social status, my significance is built out of my spiritual practice or I run with the yoga crowd and I, I don't associate with people who don't do yoga or I, I'm a vegan and God forbid, I, I won't have any friends who aren't vegan. Those sort of spiritually motivated practices, I think, go 100% against the grain of spirituality. It's not creating oneness and inclusivity. It's creating separation and exclusivity. So I, I think there's, a, there, there's an insight that I absolutely love. And the insight says, the path we take to find ourselves will become the path we lose ourselves on if we stay on that path too long. So I, I think a, a lot of spiritually minded people uh, adopt practices, philosophies, ways of thinking that really works well for them initially, works well for them at the time they adopt it. Um, and on that path, those same practices uh, cause that person to begin to lose themselves, where now there's been a sleight of hand, where now I'm doing meditation, you know, with quite an ego agenda involved. So I, I think in the words of the uh, a wise philosopher Ice Cube, we have to check ourselves before we wreck ourselves. I think we can ask ourselves, what, what is my ego's agenda with this spiritual practice? And I think when we can ask ourselves those questions and answer them honestly, if not at least curiously, then we save ourselves from getting swallowed up by the quicksand of ultra-spirituality. In spirituality, there's certain phrases such as, I'm processing or stuff has come up. What do you think of these phrases? Yeah, I think the phrases are meaningless in and of themselves. They're just words. But I think our meaning behind the words is really important. You know, so like I'm processing. One person saying that could have deep and profound meaning. The other person saying it, they're just empty words. So, you know, a person who says, you know, I'm processing, they might actually be like significantly connected to their heart and they're moving an emotion that's been trapped inside their body for 15 years. So they're literally processing something. And then the person next to him says, Hey, I'm processing. But the real meaning might just be, I'm disconnecting from you. I'm going into denial and dissociating from talking with you and from being connected with myself. And by me saying I'm processing it just becomes a way to justify why I'm disconnected from you. 
uh, and to justify why I'm disconnecting from myself. So in other words, it camouflages how we're perhaps disconnecting and going into denial of our emotions while it puts on the facade that we're actually connecting to our emotions and other people. So, I, you know, I, I think self-awareness is very essential because we can speak very poetic, spiritually appropriate words that mean nothing more than a sloppy pile of dog crap, uh, if we're not careful, and we'll buy into our own crap. Uh, so I think we need to be very in, intentional and, and curious, not just of what are the words I'm speaking, but what is the deeper meaning behind these words and what's my deeper reality behind these words? Because I think we all facade. It's part of human nature. I don't think there's ever going to be a person who no longer puts on a facade to themselves and other people anymore. I think the best we can do is recognize the facades we put on and hopefully even recognize them before we put them on. The worst case scenario is we go into a facade and we buy into it. We're, we're facading to ourselves and other people thinking, you know, yeah, I'm having this deep and meaningful, moving spiritual experience because I said the word, so it's got to be true. But we're not. It, we've completely fooled ourselves uh, because we bought into our uh, fluffy spiritualized language. So, yeah, uh, the energy behind the words, I think, is important to really pay attention to so that we don't get seduced by uh, linguistically uh, uh, spiritual words. I know, JP, you're an emotional uh, healing coach as well. How is this type of coaching different from the other styles of coaching? Well, it's a good, good question. Uh, my my perspective on that is the type of coaching I do, emotional coaching, sometimes I call it inner coaching. Um, it's all about diving into a person's inner reality, uh, their emotions. It's not focused on behavior change. I personally look at behavior as incredibly symptomatic of beliefs and feelings we have about ourselves. So a lot of coaching, and this isn't to say this, this other coaching is worse. No, 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 it's just different. But a lot of coaching focuses on changing behaviors, uh, taking actions. And, and I, I think that stuff is necessary. It's got its time and place. But what I'm really after is connecting usually to the hidden mental and emotional blockages that drive unwanted behaviors, uh, passive or active behaviors, and, and connecting to the hidden uh, realms of the psyche that drive uh, disserving self-sabotage blockages in our life. So for me, it's really working in the intangible realms with a person. And unfortunately, they're usually significantly neglected realms. 
I find it uh, funny and in kind of like a scary way. It's probably actually not funny at all. You know, most of us listening to this as kids, we were taught how to like take care of ourselves physically. Like we figured out how to use the bathroom, taught how to brush our teeth, probably even taught how to put clothes on, how to eat food. So in other words, we're it maybe even taught like exercise is a good thing. So we're taught how to take pretty good physical care of ourselves. It's not to say we're all perfect at it, but we're usually taught next to nothing as far as taking good care of ourselves emotionally. And I find that very frightening. Um, so I think there's a lot of learning we have to do we don't have to do anything, but there's a great opportunity for learning on how to really nurture, support, and take care of ourselves emotionally and mentally. And and I think, I mean, I would go as far as to say 95% of our life experience has to do with our mental and emotional uh, state of mind and state of heart. And if we don't know how to take care of that, how to go there and connect with ourselves and address ourselves at those levels, then we're potentially leaving 95% of our peace of mind and life experience essentially neglected. So I think there's so much contentment, so much joy, so much vulnerability, so much meaning and purpose that we connect to when we figure out how to wiggle in into the often neglected mental and emotional realms of our own self. I mean, hell, I, I think they're so neglected, a lot of people don't even know these realms exist. I mean, in theory, yeah, yeah, I have emotions, of course I do, but they don't actually know that their emotional realm exists. They, they have no idea how much they carry inside of themselves emotionally that can either work for us or against us what do you mean by a, a more meaningful and purposeful life yeah that's a great great question um i think i'll probably fumble around with a few words in an attempt to answer it but not really answer it i think the you know having a a meaningful life and a purposeful life those words point to a super intangible uh, experience. It's kind of a, a sense beyond our five senses. Uh, the, the feeling of purpose, I don't think we can define it with words. We either connect to it and have like a, an inner satiation that we can't get anywhere else, even though we try. Or we're disconnected to it uh, or disconnected from it and have a just an inner void that we can't satisfy no matter how much we add to it from the outside, no matter how much status we acquire, money we acquire, no matter how much drama we acquire, it, this, this inner void that only purpose can fulfill. So it's kind of like, I think the best way to you know, describe the purpose is for everybody to connect in this moment to how much of it they feel in their life or how much of the void of it they feel in their life. And I, I think because we're all 
needy people. I think there's two types of people in this world, those who are needy and those who are in denial of being needy, um, along with being emotionally wounded. One of the, the needs that I believe we all have is the need to feel as though our life matters. And I know I'm using the word feel in an abstract way. It's kind of pointing to this intangible feeling of purpose. So we need to feel like our life matters. We, we really need that. And if we, don't, if we don't have it, we desperately compensate in very misdirected ways that usually cause a lot of sabotage in our life to try and manufacture a quick fix of my life matters. So, yeah, you know, I last thing I'll say on that is I continue to not answer the question, but I'll offer words to it anyway. I have a note written on my desk, and I've had this same note on my desk for, I think, at least three years and the note says, what wants to live through me? It's a question that I, that I need to read every day, apparently. What wants to live through me? And I think the sense of meaningfulness and purpose that I think we are all craving and looking for, whether we're finding it or not, has to do with this thing that wants to live through us. The art of our life, whatever your art is, and I'm not just talking about the traditional arts of music, painting, creativity. I mean, the art of each of our lives. I think there is something bigger than our own beady little human self mind that wants to live through us. When we can teach our ego to be humble enough to allow it to live through us, I think then and only then do we drink from the well of meaning and purpose. But when our ego uh, doesn't allow it, because our ego needs to be arrogant, in control, have a delusional sense of kind of Donald Trump-like power, our ego doesn't let something bigger than it live through us. And therefore, we don't feel that connection to purpose and meaning. And it honestly, a uh, last little mumble about this question I'll throw on it. I think if I were to offer a coherent definition of feeling and purpose, it really means we're in connection to something bigger than us. Whatever that is, God, universe, mother nature, higher self, Santa Claus, the Easter bunny, I don't really care what we call it. We mostly call it all different things, but we're all talking about the same thing being connected to something bigger than us, I think is really what feeling purpose and meaning points to. Do you think that we can become a slave to life if we're not living our dream and following our hearts? Yeah, unfortunately, yeah. Uh, I think we, we become a slave to the servant uh, when we're not following our hearts and our true dreams. I think when we're following our hearts, we become a slave to that sort of kingdom of our heart, of our dreams. And I, and I know the word slave has a negative connotation, but here I mean it in a, a, a wonderful way. 
being a slave to your heart. I think it means you're in service to your heart, to your dreams, not anybody else's, not society's, not expectations, but you're in service to your heart, your dream, your life purpose. And I think that's the best thing for us. I don't think we really generate our life purpose. I think at best we receive it and honor it by becoming a slave to it, if you will, uh, to make our life in service uh, to our purpose. I, I think that's where we get deep satisfaction in life. And when we're not doing that, I mean, we become pretty desperate. We, we don't like to feel how it feels to be empty inside. So typically when we're void of that connection to our dream and our purpose, we'll go through the first half of our life trying to fill in the emptiness, sometimes with family, kids, marriages, money, status, uh, accomplishments, you know, physical fitness or lack thereof. And usually, uh, at least by the second half of our life, we've spent 40 or 50 years learning that we can't get satisfaction by um, uh, controlling, filling ourselves up from the outside. So that's when you usually the second half of life in an archetypal way, that's when we reach a point of surrender and begin not trying to uh, give answers to questions but we begin trying to ask ourselves the questions that lead us to perhaps discover the purpose that uh, will be very deeply satisfying to be in service to. And how important do you think our intuition is in finding and, and creating this purpose? Yeah, I think intuition is about 100% of the ball game. to be honest with you. You know, our buddy Albert Einstein has a thought that I absolutely love. Intuition is a uh, sacred gift, and our rational mind is a faithful servant. But most of us live our lives honoring the servant and forgetting the gift. So the sacred gift of our intuition, oh, it's so important. And I know we'd all love to have our intuition speak to us kind of clear as day, speak to me in English or whatever the language is and, you know, tell me what I'm supposed to do. Well, uh, sometimes it actually works that way. But I think a lot of times our intuition is working, uh, it's communicating with us in a more profound language, though it's a more ambiguous language. It's the language of feelings, uh, the language of, you know, following our gut. And sometimes it's the language of having an idea or an inspiration without the the rational thought to justify why I want to do this idea or why I have this inspiration. And I, I think our intuition oftentimes will guide us into trial and error adventures where sometimes our intuition probably has the wisdom to know that in order for us to figure out what we want out of life, we have to experience what we don't want out of life. So we might need very, you know, a number of relationships that teach us what we don't want in a relationship before we can find what we do want in a relationship. 
It might need us to experience what we don't want out of a career or a job so that we can figure out what we do want. So I think sometimes our intuition guides us into those experiences that certainly don't seem like they're directly in, you know, connecting with, uh, connecting us with our personal enlightenment. But I think our intuition is there nonetheless, guiding us exactly where we need to go. And, uh, I think the only question is, are we listening to our intuition, to our feelings, to our flashes of insight, flashes of inspiration? Are we listening to it or not? I, I don't think there's a human being alive that doesn't have a brilliant intuitive mind. Just like there's a human being, there's not a human being alive that doesn't have a heart. Like the design team just doesn't make human beings without hearts, without eyeballs. It's just part of the package. And I think the same is true. The design team doesn't make us without an intuitive mind. And, you know, our intuition, that intuitive system it doesn't show up when you dissect the human anatomy. I mean, you dissect the human anatomy and you can see our circulatory system, digestive system, our leg muscles. So we can say, oh, those are definitely there. But just because intuitive mind doesn't show up when we dissect the anatomy doesn't mean it's not there. So I think first and foremost, I love to invite people to acknowledge you're far more intuitive than you think you are. I would dare challenge people further to consider that your intuition is always working. The only question is, are you aware of it or not? And once you become aware of your intuition, are you trusting it or not? So, you know, you kind of hear it, you feel it, but are you abiding by it? is the next question. So, you know, it, it, and I'm kind of making it sound easy, like, oh, yeah, just listen to your intuition and following it. You know, it's a dance. It, it's, a, it's a sort of interpretive dance. We're all in relationship with our intuition. We're learning how to be in a more intimate connection with it. So we're learning how to dance with it. It's not easy. It's not straightforward. It's not in the human owner's manual how to do it. It's, it's a awkward adventure at best, but it's just like walking, you know, as when we were all one years old uh, or however old you were when you learned to walk, you didn't know how to walk before you knew how to walk. So it was a very awkward, clumsy adventure. You had trials and errors. You fell down. You bumped yourself. You failed many times. And I think it's the same way learning to walk with our intuition. You know, we're eventually, yes, you will know how to walk. You'll be dancing gracefully with it. But the consequence of learning how to trust your intuition is you have to go through the awkward phase of learning to walk with it. The awkward phase of not knowing how to trust it is necessary in order to be able to calibrate into being able to trust it. But I think our intuition is our greatest gift. I think our rational mind is typically very threatened by our in intuition. You know, a lot of us would be scared to death the idea of doing something without 
a rational reason to justify why we're doing that something, making that decision. Um, yet I think that fear is necessary. Our, our, better said, our willingness to tolerate that fear is necessary in order for us to be more intuitive with ourselves. I personally am a big fan of not making decisions based on what I think. I love to make the decisions based on kind of the intuitive feel. And sometimes I'm out of touch as hell with my intuition. But, um, well, Michal, you allowed me to get a little bit uh, excited about this intuition question that you asked 45 minutes ago. <laughs> Thank you for let me go a long-winded with the answer. It's great listening to you. What do you think stops or blocks that intuition in people? I would guess it's our fear of the unknown. I think what our human minds crave more than anything in life is the comfort of familiarity. But I think the human heart, soul, and spirit always wants to expand and evolve, which by definition, if we're expanding and evolving, it means we're going into unfamiliar territory you know, psychologically, life experience-wise, whatever it is. So I think our intuition is a beacon of our, you know, our human heart and soul and spirit that wants to grow, evolve, and expand. So our intuition is therefore perhaps always guiding us into the mystery so we can expand into unknown territory. I don't think our intuition likes to pioneer territory that's already well chartered out it tries to take us into the unpioneered territory, unexplored territory of our life. And that's uncomfortable. It's scary. I mean, to go into the metaphoric dark forest, we don't know what's in there. So uh, I think a willingness to be scared is essential in order for us to be willing, halfway willing to listen to our intuition. So I think our, our ego desperately wants to discount our intuition so our ego can better solidify uh, its position into a place of familiar comfort. And they say, JP, that the minute you embrace death is the minute you start living. Mm. Do you think this is true? Yeah, well said. I, I think our spirit and ego have a very conflicting perspectives on life and death. I think what our spirit says is life sounds like death to our ego. I think our ego would say, yeah, what life is about is having control. Makes me feel safe, comfortable, familiar. And our spirit might say, yeah, what life is really about is surrendering control. And our ego says, what? Spirit? That's life to you? Sounds like death to me. If I don't have control, how am I going to sustain my life? Whether it's the control of breath or the control of food and water or the control of my surroundings and how I relate to them. Uh, so, yeah, I think when we look at what our ego believes is death, we have to be willing to encounter that in order to experience what our spirit would call life. And that, I mean, that's, that's a dangerous task. It's very scary. 
But I think there's a reason why a lot of us spend so much of our time uh, having a pulse and breathing, but we're not living. Uh, it's because we're in a place of um, needing to comfort ourselves rather than being willing to experience the fear. And at the same time, when we are willing to experience the the fear of death, if you will, letting go of control so that we can actually live, there is a very sweet reward on the other side, which would be life. And I think it's pretty interesting. If you ask, you know, a, a, a little baby who's coming through the birth canal, hey, what's happening to you? Baby would probably say, I'm dying. I'm going towards a certain death. We know on the other side, now the baby's being born into a more expansive life. But when you're that baby going into a bigger form of life, you think you're going into death. And I think we have to, we're called to experience that in many ways in our life. Um, in hell, on our deathbed, you'd probably say to 90-year-old JP, What's happening right now? I'd say, oh, I'm dying. You'd probably say, well, I think you're actually about to be born into a bigger life. And, and outside the, the literal uh, uh, aspects of the, you know, being born as a baby and uh, having the illusion of death as an old person, I think we sort of reincarnate many times throughout our lifetime here in uh, each time, you know, we we're going for through what feels like a certain death, like, holy cow, my, you know, my beloved just broke up with me and it feels like I'm dying. Eh, that's probably uh, actually us being born into a, a bigger life or us taking a risk. Like, you know, my heart really wants to go into this creative pursuit, but I've been in this steady, stable job for 20 years, pays well, it's very secure, but it's not satisfying. To, to quit that job, it, it's scary as death. It feels like we're dying, but that may just be us sliding through the terrifying birth canal into a much more multidimensional life than we know now. How could we create, say, new possibilities by embracing the word of I don't know? Mm. Yeah, uh, I love that. Probably the wisest answer I could say is I don't know. But <laughs> I'm going to act arrogant and pretend that I have an opinion on it. You know, I, I think um, the wise people are the ones who know what they don't know. And the wise people are also the ones who know that they don't know that what they don't know. They know that they don't know what they don't know. And I think I don't know that realm. It's, it's essentially infinite possibilities. When we look at the realm of what I do know, the realm of the known, well, there's only finite possibilities. Um, you know, there's far more that we don't know compared to what we do know. And I think that's true about ourselves. I think there is far more that you don't know about yourself compared to what you do know about yourself. So when we can become the sort of the hero on the journey of our own life, 
aiming our focus to discover what we don't know about ourselves, there is rich discoveries there. When we just aim our focus into dwelling in our own dogmas of what we do know about ourselves, well, there's not a lot of riches there. I mean, there's familiarity, there's control. That can be gratifying to a small degree. Um, but the real riches, I think, come from exploring what we don't know. And, and when we can also acknowledge that what we do know about ourselves isn't necessarily true. It's just what we think we know about ourselves. It's just what we think we know about life. I think that that helps us become less dogmatic about our own dogma, that which we know. And I think that becoming less attached to it helps open us up to be willing to be curious about what we don't know. And I think curiosity killed the cat, but it enlivens the human spirit. Curiosity is all about pointing ourselves towards what I don't know. Uh, a lack of curiosity, which is a need for certainty, to me is turning our back on the infinite realm of what I don't know, and it's keeping me dwelling in the realm of what I do know, or that at least what I think I know. And as someone sometime probably said, you know, probably a wiser person than myself, uh, said, have your beliefs, but don't believe your beliefs. And I think that's, that's really mental freedom. I think we need beliefs, try to live without them. You say, well, I, I don't have beliefs. And I would say, well, you have the belief that you don't have beliefs. Um, I think we all need beliefs. And I think the beliefs work against us when we buy into them. But if we can have beliefs and do our best to not believe our beliefs, to not believe everything we think, I think that is freedom. It opens up a new dimension of the unknown to us. And I think Carl Jung, the famous Swiss psychiatrist, said it well, that what healing is, and I'll also say what life satisfaction is, is making the unconscious conscious. And what's unconscious is the unknown. And if we're not open to the unknown, the unconscious then we'll never become conscious of it. What would you like people to say about you when you've moved on from this world, JP? Well, it's a good question. Uh, I love that question. I don't think I've ever thought of that. Um, yeah. Man, that, that, that's a great question. My first instinct is... It would mean a lot to me if people would be able to say, JP knew how to not take himself and life very seriously. Um, in other words, JP was amused by life. I, that would mean a lot to me. I, I don't know why. I just know that that's the answer that comes up for me. Um, yeah, I appreciate the question. Finally, JP, would you have any practical tips, say, or even suggestions for listeners on how they could bring more meaning and purpose into their life? Mm. Yeah, um, that's a, a great question, too. 
Uh, one of the things I'd ask people to consider as far as bringing more meaning and purpose into their life is maybe ask yourself the question, what wants to live through me? It's, it's not important to answer the question. It's important to ask the question. I'd also invite people to consider doing their best to embrace discomfort. Um, uh, the lovely, lovely author, Brene Brown, has said, and I'll do my best to quote her words, he or she who is willing to be the most uncomfortable rises the quickest and the farthest. And we're not talking about rises like social status, though that maybe that happens, but I think rises the quickest and the furthest in terms of life, life satisfaction. He or she who is willing to be the most uncomfortable. Um, normally, we look at discomfort and automatically judge it to be a bad thing because it hurts. But I think we need to, you know, that, and that's our self-preservation instinct. But our self-realization instinct works paradoxical to our self-preservation instinct. I think our self-realization instinct, you know, that kind guides us to the meaning and purpose and inner satisfaction, says if something's uncomfortable, then that's going to broaden my life. Our egoic sense of self-preservation says, if something's uncomfortable, then it could threaten my life. And I'm not talking about like, go jump off a cliff because it'll hurt or go get hit by a car because it'll get hurt. I'm talking about psychological discomfort. That's the discomfort that the more we can be willing to be vulnerable with it and feel it and encounter it, the more we will rise high and go far in our own life. So make friends with your discomfort. I would also, which is what I'm about to say is just the same thing with different words. Embrace your insecurities. I think that is absolutely essential. It's okay for you to be insecure. It's okay for you to have the things you judge to be flaws. I think the more we can embrace them, a couple things happen. One, we, we find a sense of security by becoming secure enough to be transparent with our insecurities. And two, when we can embrace our insecurities, we're no longer just posturing ourselves to hide our insecurities from the world and ourself. And if we're no longer needing to hide aspects of ourself from the world and ourselves because we're becoming transparent with our insecurities, it lets us show up for our life in a much bigger, bolder way. We can just show up for our life when we don't need to hide aspects of our insecure self in the closet, but it's like we're arriving in our life rather than, you know, showing up only halfway present. If anybody wants to find out more about your work, JP, then how could they do it? Yeah, I think the the best place to find me is my YouTube channel, which is Awaken with JP. I'm putting out uh, new videos uh, uh, every week, usually multiple times a week, both videos of kind of direct, kind of thought-provoking insight and food for thought, as well as the ultra-spiritual comedy videos. So... Yeah, feel free to uh, find me there, subscribe if you'd like, and 
that's a, a good way to stay current with kind of the conversation of what I'm doing. Do you do one-to-one over the phone or Skype, or do you have to be living near you? Yeah, I, I do. In fact, probably 95% of my whole practice is done via Skype. And uh, you know, uh, people can find out more about that on my website, which is innerawakeningsonline.com. Thanks so much for your time today, JP. I, I really enjoyed it. It was a pleasure talking to you. You're welcome, Michal. I really appreciate you having me on to your lovely offering to the world. Uh, it's been a pleasure uh, talking with you and for you to invite me on. It's just absolutely uh, wonderful. So I appreciate that, my friend. Thanks for listening to another show of The Health Zone. Tune in next week for more exciting and interesting topics and guests in the areas of spirituality, relationships, finance, creativity, health, career, and much, much more. In the meantime, check out and like our Facebook page on www.facebook.com forward slash The Health Zone Show or follow us on Twitter on the letter D Health Zone or log on to our website www.thehealthzoneshow.com If you subscribe to our mailing list on there, you will get The Health Zone Show delivered to your inbox every week and also you'll get a copy of our free book called How to Transform Your Health in 2016. Also, if you have any feedback on the show or if you would like to get in touch with us, our email is tunein at thehealthzoneshow.com Well, until next week, have a fantastic, healthy and happy week.